0: It is Wednesday, February 28th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellum.
1: I'm Matthew Moore. Today, three weeks, two U of A students, and one box of mystery materials, all made from soybeans.
2: So we received fabric, we received crayons, wax, what else was in there? Thread. There was
3: embroidery thread, pleather, um, natural pigment dyes.
2: Plus, election
0: day for the March primary is coming up. Do we put enough emphasis on the importance of this election? I don't think so.
4: I really don't.
0: And connecting service dogs with children living with autism.
5: We know that the use of service dogs in autism is going up, and and they're having great results. But that is a, a large expense that many families cannot afford, and also you have to maintain the training of the dog.
1: All that after the news
5: from NPR. The Walton Arts Center presents To Kill a Mockingbird, on stage April 16th through the 21st. Harper Lee's novel has been adapted for the stage by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Bartlett Schur, and stars Richard Thomas as Atticus Finch. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org.
1: This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF. First up today, two University of Arkansas students recently placed in the top of a textile design contest with a unique prompt, Use Only Sustainable Materials Made of Soy. Ozarks at Large's Janet Carruth visited the two finalists on the U of A campus last week to learn more.
6: Cassandra Wright fans out a rectangular cut of fabric onto a desk in the Home Economics Building on the University of Arkansas campus.
3: The remnant of the portion that I did submit.
6: It's a pale brown-pink color with moth patterns and tufts of what look like horsehair jutting out from the design.
3: You had to cut it up and send like a big portion of it. Wright
6: and her classmate Annalise Robbins are both apparel studies majors and they recently took part in the next style, Soy in Textile Design Challenge, a contest held by the United Soybean Board. Wright says the goal is to expose design students to soy-based materials and to help them think more about integrating sustainable products in their work.
3: I'm I'm very passionate about sustainability, so I was very like hands on. Like yes, let's do this. Let's see what we can do with this.
6: The competition for college students across the U. S. was broad. Entrants could create anything within the textile industry, from clothing to upholstery to car interiors. But Wright explains there were some specific parameters.
3: They sent us a box. We didn't know what was coming into it. it as a mystery. Um, and we had three weeks, as soon as we opened the box, we had three weeks to make something out of it.
6: The students had to use at least three of the materials provided in the box in their design. And Robin says the material within those boxes were unlike anything that she's really worked with before.
2: So we received fabric, we received crayons, wax. What else was in there? Thread? There was embroidery thread, pleather,
3: Mm -hmm. um, the fabric, um, natural pigment dyes.
2: And all of
6: those materials were made from soy protein. Both Robbins and Wright say they had to find ways to make these products work for their vision, which meant a lot of research and experimentation.
3: No, this is the first time that I've used anything soy-based. And like in my research that I did, it was surprising to know how you know, soy is, of course, protein, we all knew that, but in order for us to think about how it serves as a protein-based product rather than animal-based protein products, um, and so there was a whole other ball game in comparison to like cellulose types of fibers, which is like cotton and linen, There's a, it's a, it reacts different. Um, and what was really cool too, that soy, the soy textile itself serves as an antibacterial Um, textile. It has a soft hand. It was very durable, stretchable. Like It's a really great replacement.
6: One big challenge, though, Robin says, was in manipulating the new material to work for her design and learning how to use some new techniques.
2: And yeah, I had done some stuff like this before, but definitely was a challenge. Lots of research, also videos on learning how to do it, how to thread fibers into yarn, which is something I never thought that I would do, honestly, but it was very fun, Um, definitely a challenge. And Wright says
6: in order to develop her design, she ended up having to make her own soy milk to dye the fabric.
3: Um, So as soon as I saw the soy wax, and the dye, I was like, I want to batik. And batiking is a technique where you take soy wax and you melt it and it's a canting tool or canting tool, however you wanna say it. It will melt the wax and you make a design onto your fabric. And once you've let the wax like set and dry, that's whenever you can dye the fabric once that has been set so i had to make soy milk separately to for the pigment for it to (laughs) bind to the fabric as well it serves as a protein-based binder for the fabric and once that's been set and i hand washed out the dye then i took an iron and removed the wax and whenever you remove the wax it leaves this design or impression into the fabric and with the fibers Um, I wanted to give the moth body, so I made a moth, um, I wanted to give the body texture. So I took the embroidery thread and I bunched up of the fibers and hand embroidered the fibers onto the moth body to give it that texture.
6: So while this whole competition may seem like some obscure arts and crafts project... Both Wright and Robbins say understanding and showing how to commercially utilize sustainable materials like soy is an important skill, and they believe it's the future of their industry.
2: Um, sustainability is very important to me, just knowing that textile industry is a number two polluter behind oil and gas, and a lot of it is... There's not a lot of thinking right now of how we can improve that, it's just we know that's what's going on. And so with this competition, it's not only addressing sustainability, but it's also addressing how to be creative with it. And that intersectionality is really how I think we can see a difference when we address um, that creativity is a big part of this and how we can bring people to want to move forward in sustainability.
6: According to an analysis from the United Nations Environment Program, fashion production accounts for about 10% of global carbon emissions, while 85% of all textiles in production end up in a landfill each year.
3: Um, By utilizing soy as a raw material, these textiles contribute to reducing the environmental impact. Um, And so over time, like this is this will naturally break down versus synthetics um, and you know one of my things that i'm kind of passionate about is i don't like factory farming and so to me i was like wow this is protein based and it can replace like protein based materials like and how we can go with that like factory farming is one of the number one pollutants of our world too like whether people think of that or not so this was amazing to be able to like research and show what we can do with this. And people are like, like yeah, that's amazing. They're like, Yeah, it's all soy, <laughs> so.
6: And doing this kind of work in Arkansas takes on its own significance. The state is in the top 10 soybean producers in the country, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Soybeans are also the state's most widely grown crop, with more than 3 million acres harvested in 2023.
3: And it makes an abundant source for that textile production. The production of soy-based textiles supports local farmers um, who cultivate soybeans, and it contributes to the growth of the agricultural sector. So, like, to me, that's such a big deal. It's very... Local economically, like it is going to cost, like sending things, you know, outsourcing. But if you're able to source onshore or locally, like that's better for your economy um, and for everyone. I think overall.
6: And Robbins says doing this project, where the raw material is at the forefront, also helps to show how different disciplines and industries are connected.
2: Also, Dale Bumper's College, it's agriculture as well as a and home economics and things are here and kind of understanding why we are so connected to each other, I think is really cool and important. Um, also growing up, if you would have told me that I'd be going here and studying something like this, I wouldn't have believed you. So I just think it's really cool to be able to do this and to inspire other people that this is something that happened here and Bumper's agriculture, love, but it has a lot more things in that and we're all connected. So yeah. Mm-hmm.
6: Wright and Robbins placed in the top two spots for the University of Arkansas, which earned them a $500 and $250 scholarship respectively. Now Wright's first place design is representing the U of A in the national competition.
3: Currently in this moment, I'm just waiting to hear back. So yeah, I I submitted my videos. um, I submitted a paper and mailed off my sample. in a sketch of like what it would be intended for, commercialized for, and the research behind that. So now I'm just playing the waiting and game on that. So
6: For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth.
1: Daniel Carruth produces his stories in the Karen Taha News Studio. This is Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. We are less than a week away now from election day for the Arkansas primary. We have spent a lot of time talking about the nonpartisan elections happening on March 5th, which include the election of the next chief justice for the Arkansas Supreme Court. John Davis is the executive director for the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History and the author of the forthcoming book, From Blue to Red, The Rise of the GOP in Arkansas. He came into the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 recently and says, In a one-party supermajority state like Arkansas, primaries can serve as the de facto general election. In many races.
4: I asked him if we put enough emphasis on that point. I don't think so. I really don't. Uh, to your point, for a very long time, really up until the, the teens, I believe it was 2014 was, I believe, the first election cycle where we had more people participating in the GOP primaries than the Democratic primaries. Uh, and that reflected this tidal wave, this, this huge shift in the partisan balance of our state. So people have now, understandably, moved to the GOP primary, and it's again, it's open primary state. Um, you can be a, a diehard Democrat and still go to participate in the GOP primaries these days in Arkansas because that's where you are going to have competition. You are going to have more than one candidate vying for a seat. So right now we have Congressman Walmock running against Mister Pinzo, and and they're they're competing. There are not that many. Frankly, there are not that many Democrats in office in Arkansas at the current state. But even those who are running, there's not that many um, competitive competitive seats, right, or competitive open seat races for Democrats. There are very few Democrats running against Democrats right now. So we see that reflected in where people sort of move to vote. But, and this is, I think, a concern, is because we, we maybe we take it for granted. Maybe people like us that look to think about this stuff, and we know it matters, and we participate, and maybe we forget to stress that general elections are important, but in in states, and we're not unique in that we're a one-party state, in a one-party state, the primaries matter just as much, maybe more. If you really want to participate in races where your vote absolutely mathematically matters and you wanted to get more bang for your buck, say you could only pick one election, you know, I can do the primary or I can do the general election, there's an argument to be made that the primary is just as important, if not more important, in some of these contests. Because who wins that primary between Congressman Walmock and Representative, uh, State Representative Penzo, that's going to likely determine the winner of that congressional contest in, in the fall of 24. So, you know, not to say that we shouldn't vote in general elections, but the primary election is very important and is often overlooked. And I think part of it's the dates move. It's March 5 this year. It won't be probably in two or four years. These things shift around a little bit. Um, even the way we title it, it's called the, you know, the preferential primary. And then we also stick some other stuff on there, judicial races and whatnot. So it's a little confusing. And we see that reflected. We see, um, again, a state with low turnout, unfortunately. We see even lower turnout in primaries. And they matter. Primaries matter a great deal. Much of Arkansas's political history has been the result of primaries, much more so than the general election. And that hasn't changed today. Uh, Policy, um, the the people in office, the personalities of these people in office, all that is tempered by primaries, much more so than the general election.
1: I'm glad that you you brought up the element of justices because you can go to a primary and vote Republican, you can vote Democrat, but you can also vote a nonpartisan ticket. Can you talk a little bit about... Why does that exist? What does that mean? And what is the significance of those nonpartisan races that happen at the primary
4: ballots? Around 20 years ago, um, the state of Arkansas, the voters of Arkansas, um, determined that they wanted to ratify a constitutional amendment that took partisanship out of judicial races. For a very long time, you had uh, judicial officers that had to file as partisan candidates, just like many of the other candidates we've been discussing. And so their primary process, their selection process, looked a lot like what we've been discussing up to this point. 20 or so, maybe a little over 20 years ago, uh, voters decided that was not a good idea. That had been an issue that had been discussed for several decades up to that point. The effect was we were going to have nonpartisan judicial races. Those nonpartisan judicial races are now um, settled at the same time as these primaries we've been discussing. So what happens is you go and, and vote on March 5th or, or maybe early vote, and you'll have the option of uh, different party ballots. So we'll just use the classic two-party example. Uh, I can walk in. I have to show my ID and, and verify um, who I am and whatnot. And then I can go over and I can pick a Democratic ballot, I can pick a Republican ballot, or I can pick, as you said, a a nonpartisan ballot. Interestingly enough, any of those three ballots would still have those judicial contests on them. But if I just really don't want to participate in that partisan contest on either what, on the Republican side or Democratic side, I can just take that other option and that's going to have all those nonpartisan races on it. And that's something, again, we overlook. Uh, Judicial races are are almost kept secret. Uh, There's not as much money into those. There's not as much analysis and discussion really going into those races ahead of time. Judicial candidates, because they don't have to pick a party label, they sort of get to remain neutral when they campaign. You don't hear a lot of judicial nominees talking about cases or how they would rule. Certainly wouldn't do that. But they won't really talk about previous cases as well. They usually strike uh, the same sort of, you know, we want to follow the Constitution, we want to follow the rule of law, I'm a level-headed, experienced, you know, litigator. That sort of, that sort of thing is typically what we hear. So we kind of keep voters in the dark there on that one, and, and I think it was a good idea – It was sort of a good government idea that we would strip partisanship out of those judicial races. The political reality is these are still people. They're still voters. Some of them have been elected officials in partisan positions in the past. So it's not a partisan contest. Um, It is um, this sort of other option that you will literally see when you go in to vote on a ballot. Um, But it still has the, the flavor of a regular political primary.
1: John Davis is the executive director of the Pryor Center and the author of the new book, From Blue to Red, The Rise of the GOP in Arkansas. Primary Election Day is March 5th. This is Ozarks at Large.
0: University of Arkansas will observe National Science Nursing Day on Thursday, March 7th, with a day devoted to the state of the science for animal-assisted therapy. It'll take place from noon until 7 p.m. at the Fayetteville Town Center. The keynote presentation will be delivered by Temple Grandin, the best-selling author and distinguished professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Also speaking that day, Michelle Kilmer, an assistant professor and program director, access for autism in the Eleanor Mann School of Nursing at the University of Arkansas. She'll discuss use of canines in autism therapy. Last week, Michelle Kilmer and her canine assistant Griffin came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. She says the study of animal-assisted therapy actually dates back to Florence Nightingale.
5: She noted in the Crimean War that the patients did better, and this is a little bit, to me, it gives me the EBs, but they would allow birds to go into the hospital And sing with patients and be petted by patients and feed, be fed by patients. And the patients that interacted with the birds actually did better than the patients who didn't. And she wrote about it in her writing that there is something environmentally that humans and animals need to be together. So that concept has always interested me. And there are more and more um, allied health professions, schools and nurses who are using specifically canines in their practice to promote mental health. So we wanted to highlight that this year because we know that more places in Northwest Arkansas, not just nursing, um, but especially with schools and counseling centers are using canines. So we wanted to establish best practices and really develop a community of all of us who are using canines in this area. You're
0: going to have experts from the University of Arkansas, but from outside the U of A, addressing different aspects of this.
5: Absolutely. So we have uh, representatives from Auburn University, uh, the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, and then at Colorado State University. So we are offering a variety of different presentations for different needs. So uh, Kyria Henry from the University of North Carolina Wilmington, she is going to talk about their program they have, it's a a minor degree in animal science where students are assigned a puppy when they're freshmen. And when they complete their four years of college they earn a minor in animal science but they are able to give this now service dog to someone in the community. Um, It's an amazing program they have there. She is also going to talk about the ethical training and treatment of canines, because there's no standards Mm -hmm. for how we use these animals. I could do whatever I wanted with Griffin. I'm just a really great, nice person, and so I treat him well, but there are no standards. So she's going to talk about that and explain to those who use canines in the workforce, here are some things you need to think about when you're using a canine. Then uh, the representatives from Auburn, they are going to talk about their work with canines in um, the community with serving uh, people with dementia and Alzheimer's and also addressing mental health needs in the schools. So they have four dogs, I think maybe five now, that work in their school of nursing just with their students. And their mental health um, has improved among the students because of these dogs. Then you have me Mm -hmm. (laughs) talking about what I do with Griffin at the university with children who have autism. And then lastly, we have Dr. Temple Grandin from Colorado State University, who is by far the most well-known speaker we have. Um, And she is going to also piggyback on what what I'm talking about, using canines and other animals to assist those who have autism across the, the, the lifespan. Mine is more for pediatrics and hers is more for all of us.
0: Let me ask about Griffin, who's with us in the studio. How did the two of you link up?
5: So I always wanted to include a dog in my research. I've been in the field of autism for 23 years, studying it and getting to know that community very well. And I have noticed a bond. Um, between canines and those who have autism so I wanted to study the effect of a specially trained dog for those families who can't afford a service dog uh, we know that the use of service dogs in autism is going up and and they're having great results but that is a, a large expense that many families cannot afford and also you have to maintain the training of the dog so my research with Griffin was could I have similar results in prosocial behavior and in an emotional regulation if I have a dog trained to be a therapy dog and a service dog who can serve many people. So service dogs are assigned to one person only. Mm-hmm. And I had to train Griffin to do those tasks to whoever I asked him to. And it's not been done before. Um, it's the equivalent of me saying, okay, think of your child, how much you love your child. Now go hug a bunch of kids like that. And so I've really had to work with him and had different trainers help me train him to do these specific tests to a variety of children. I wanted a dog with a high drive, and Griffin has a very high drive. Yes. Um, because I, I, while I respect therapy dogs, and especially those that are providing comfort measures, I wanted the kids to interact, so Griffin is trained to make them interact with him. He knows 50 commands and 10 American um, Signs so that children who are nonverbal who sign can talk with him, and he knows how to get these kids to interact with him. He has had much better success than I have had on my own to get the kids to interact.
0: Griffin's two years old. He is. When did you... you...
5: Eleven weeks old. Okay. I got him when he was just a baby and started immediately training him at 12 weeks to do what he's doing.
0: What kind of dog is he? He's beautiful.
5: He's a black lab. He is an American black lab, so he's smaller than an English black lab. He weighs about 50 pounds. We're trying to keep him... Right at 50, I don't want him to knock kids over, Uh, but he is definitely a working dog. He comes from a long line (laughs) of dogs who are uh, duck hunters or also canine drug-detecting dogs, and I wanted a dog who could sense anxiety. So we've trained Griffin to smell for anxiety. So when I'm working with a kid in the clinic, he can alert me to when they become nervous, even before I realize it or the child realizes it. How do you
7: do that? How do you train
5: a kid? Yeah, I mean, train a dog?
0: Because we can't. We as humans can't smell anxiety.
5: No, no. He has many more senses, hundreds sure. more senses than we do. So, uh, you have different uh, scents that you use in scent training to help them detect an anxiety smell. But Griffin, because he's been working with me for so long, he'll pick it up. He just picked it up on his own. There are many behaviors that. I wish I could say I trained him to do, that he just does on his own. But he will first alert me by nudging me, and then he'll sit by the child and let them pet his ears. Then he lays his head on their lap, then he hugs them, which releases oxytocin. All of that, I don't even have to ask him to do. He just does it on his own. A smart boy. He's very smart, very smart dog.
0: What do you think it is about Because we all have these relationships, right? I I shouldn't say all. Many of us have relationships with dogs, trained or not, that you can feel when you're anxious or you're had a bad day. They can help you relieve that stress.
5: What is it? It is a hormonal synchronization that canines and humans have. It's unique to canines and humans. Oxytocin and cortisol. He can smell both. So he, his oxytocin level, which is a calming hormone, he can make mine go up by just laying on me. Within one minute, my oxytocin level will be higher. He can also decrease my cortisol level so that I'm less stressed.
0: Your research is helping; is going to help so many people in the future, don't you think?
5: My hope is that, for sure. Um, there are no protocols for what I do. And so my, my goal is to be able to design a program that can be used in schools, in different clinics and counseling centers, so that other clinicians and other handlers understand these activities will promote prosocial behavior. Canines can do so much more than just be petted. Mm. These activities will promote emotional regulation. And we have had amazing success. Um, my initial goal was just, let's just see what happens. I didn't expect Griffin to be so successful. The kids really relate to him. They direct most of their verbalizations to him. They tell me things like, I knew Griffin would be proud of me for doing this, or Griffin loves me so much. Uh, and of course, Griffin's nonverbal. He can't tell them that, but every time he sees them, he's excited to see them. And they just believe that he believes in them. Uh, I had a wonderful child who had never played hide and seek before, and Griffin is played trained to do that.
0: Griffin is trained to play hide and seek.
5: Yes, so hide
0: and seek or just seek.
5: He can do both. Oh my goodness! Uh, he can play soccer. He can play hide and seek. Of course, he can fetch.
7: Sure, that's yeah, his yeah. favorite
5: thing to do. He can play chase, um, but this. Little boy, he was six, had never played hide-and-seek with friends before. So Griffin was the first one that he played hide-and-seek with. And they bonded immediately over that. And then he was able to do that at the park with children his age because he had already practiced it with Griffin. So I things like this are occurring that I hadn't expected uh, to occur. And so I'm just trying to write everything down so that other people can build on it.
0: You're a scientist, and scientists have to come to research with a healthy amount of skepticism, right? For sure. So what has it been like for you and then maybe colleagues who also are skeptical? Not, I'm not asking if there's been pushback, but what kind of skepticism have you run into?
5: Absolutely. Uh, so it was very important to me to choose the correct instruments and the correct methodology to show the results were accurate. And one of the biggest, not skeptics, what? question? She questioned me. It was Dr. Grandin. When I had talked to her about Griffin and the results I was getting, at first she said, no, you can't do that because a service dog only serves one person. I said, I know Dr. Grandin, but listen to how he's trained. And so we started talking about it. And I'll never forget what she said. There was this pause. And then she goes, you got a pencil? And I said, yes, I have a pencil. And she designed a study for me to show that Griffin is the reason that this is occurring, not me. And so we have the Snuffle study, so we have a group that are with Griffin, and then we have a group that are with a plush toy who is, his size looks just like Griffin, and we're trying to see do we get the same uh, interaction both inside of the session and apart from the session. So most scientists who are looking at animal assisted therapy, they look at the interaction only within the session. How does the child interact with the animal during this time? But we are trying to see if the effect lasts apart from the session. So what we are seeing is that yes, there is bonding occurring, there is prosocial behavior occurring, and there is an improvement in emotional regulation within the session. But in the kids with grip and not the kids with snuffles, apart from the sessions, they're also, their pro social behavior is increasing and their emotional regulation is improving.
0: Let's go back to the event, the the, Nash, uh, the Nursing Science Day. It's the 7th. Yes. Town Center? Town Center. Who, who can register to attend?
5: Everyone. And I want to make this very clear. It is sponsored by the Eleanor Mann School of Nursing um, and we are so happy that the College of Education and Health Professions is also um, sponsoring and partnering with us is, along with Sigma Theta Tau, uh, Pi Theta Chapter. But it's for everyone and we purposely designed it for, for this. We wanted to reach counselors, school administrators, teachers, librarians, we wanted to reach speech, occupational, physical therapists, um, and also parents, because I have a lot of parents of who ask me, how can I get a Griffin? And it's not that simple.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Do you know that Griffin is not an anomaly? I mean, he's done so well, but will the next, you know, generation, maybe he's got a gift?
5: I- that's an excellent point and it's always in the back of my mind is Griffin just really good at what he does and because he's the only one trained to do this I cannot compare him to some of my colleagues at other universities that are studying similar effects so my my goal is to be able to have more dogs and larger studies to see if we can replicate it but with other animals
0: You are charismatic, you're energetic, you're smart, you're enthusiastic, I love talking to you,
5: but I imagine
0: when you and Griffin appear somewhere together, people get maybe a little bit more excited to interact with Griffin, no offense?
5: No, I'm not offended at all. If I walk into a meeting and he's not with me, the room goes, (laughs) oh, I'm just used to it. And I'm used to, when I see people, they meetly look down like, is Griffin Mm. with you? Um, I actually had a professor from California call me. And she goes, you're Griffin's trainer, right? What's your name? Okay. <laughs> you know, I, they know him. Um, and I, I'm thrilled with that. Everyone loves him. Um, we're very respectful that not all People are dog people, right. so he is trained to keep his distance. Um, but he knows the people who, who will let him go near him. And my colleagues at um, the Eleanor Man School of Nursing have been amazing. And so have the speech and um, occupational therapy departments because they all interact with him. So he has a fan base for sure.
0: Michelle, Griffin, thank you both very much for coming in.
5: Thank you so much for having us. This was so fun. Michelle Kilmer
0: and Griffin came to the Carver Center for Public Radio last week. University of Arkansas' Observation of National Science Nursing Day will take place... Thursday, March 7th from noon until 7 p.m. at the Fayetteville Town Center. Michelle Kilmer and other scientists will be discussing the state of science for animal-assisted therapy. And the keynote speaker will be Temple Grandin. She's scheduled to start her comments at 6 p.m. The event is free and open to the public, but they do ask if you could pre-register since the space has a capacity of about 1,500 people. Temple Grandin will be signing books, and Michelle says the best time to be sure you can get a book signed by her is probably closer to one o'clock that afternoon. More details about the speakers and the event can be found at nursing.uark.edu.
8: This is Reflections in Black, and I'm your host, Raven Cook. Reflections in Black is a segment dedicated to considering the legacy of Black Americans in the United States and around the globe. Each episode has been carefully designed to lead you to wonder, encourage you to research, and support you in ways to use new knowledge to make a difference in our world. Our first step starts here and now with the new episode of Reflections in Black. Dance is a critical form of artistic expression that has been a pivotal part of the Black American experience. Black people have used dance through the African diaspora to communicate joy, hope, freedom, but also heartache and even despair. One figure who has transformed the art of dance and taken it to new levels is Judith Jameson. Judith Jameson is the youngest of two born in Philadelphia on May 10, 1943. She would be introduced to the arts at an early age through music training in piano and violin before finally deciding to pursue dance as her primary focus. Jameson practiced and trained with experts in dance before finally, at the age of 15, debuting in the performance of Giselle. Judith would briefly attend Fisk before determining that her future was dance. She went to the Philadelphia Dance Academy and made her professional debut in Affine de Mille, the Four Marys, with the American Ballet Theater. An incredible opportunity would open when Judith Jameson would begin a storied career with the Alvin Ailey Dance Company. Her most well-known piece, entitled Cry, which was a tribute to Black women, still deeply resonates with the community today. When the incredible Alvin Ailey passed away, Jameson took a brief hiatus, and upon reentering, she became artistic director of the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, which grew tremendously under her leadership. Among her many honors, Judith Jameson would be a part of the 1999 recipients of the Kennedy Center Honors, and in 2001, she would receive the National Medal of Arts. Judith Jameson continues to be a voice in the art world, and her impact is felt deeply black women's impact on art is incredibly profound but there are still challenges in a december 2023 cnn article titled ballerinas of color renew their call for Point shoes in every shade the article highlights how the issue of representation even in costuming plays a role in encouraging dancers of diverse backgrounds to enter the field Further highlighting the absence of point shoes or tights that match dancer's skin can in fact be reminders of how the long history of exclusion in the dance world continues today. How can we continue to support representation in the arts? Perhaps it is learning the different ways artistic spaces have sought to exclude black voices. Perhaps it is supporting national causes that are seeking to reform systems of injustice. Either way, you can start today. And until next time, peace.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Saturday night, two versatile, creative musicians, singers, songwriters will share a stage. Patty Steele is a very familiar entertainer in northwest Arkansas. She's been on this show before. Julia Othmer is based in the Kansas City area, and she'll be playing for the first time ever in Arkansas on Saturday night. Patty says
9: she's helped create the show after meeting Julia at a Folk Alliance International conference a few years back. Smitten immediately. Like, the first... I mean, actually, I was in the hallway... And I heard this voice and it was like, who is that? You know, and I I was drawn. So, of course, as soon as I got in there, I saw very, very many familiar faces watching her perform. But she blew me away.
0: Othmer often performs solo, but she also collaborates with her husband, James T. Lundy, who is a singer, songwriter and producer. Julia Othmer and Patti Steele stayed in touch after that first meeting at a Folk Alliance International Conference a few years ago, connecting over Zoom to talk about songwriting and musicianship. But this Saturday night will be the first time they've performed on the same stage. Earlier this week, Patti Steele came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio and we linked up with Julia on Zoom to discuss their music and the upcoming show. I mentioned to Julia that both women seem to immerse themselves in their work, wearing their artistic hearts on their sleeves and never treating any gig as something to be taken for granted.
10: I would agree with that on a very, very deep level. I think this the life of um, a performing artist is a strange one in many beautiful, beautiful ways. I don't mean strange in a negative way by any means. However, unless you have a really deep connection to it, I think the grind could just really grind you down. And so staying um, in a deep connection with what brings you to making music in the first place is hopefully sort of what will animate the performance for the audience and will also keep us connected to what we really passionately love. For me, making music is about the music, but it's even more so about the connection you get to have with an audience. Because when you play music with someone, and you meet eyes with somebody in the audience, sometimes there is an intimacy that is cultivated that goes beyond conversation, that goes beyond sort of the more more traditional ways that we engage and you can just go somewhere completely different and that connectivity is what keeps me really hooked into playing music. Very eloquent words. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, when did you start playing music? As a young very young person my first memory was hearing music and knowing i wanted to like somehow be inside of it like lay myself on like the (laughs) most incredible stereo system you've ever experienced and just somehow be on the inside of it and i begged my mom for piano lessons and i was refused because my hands were too small at the time which is kind of funny because I have rather <laughs> extraordinary piano hands. <laughs> That's very clear for everyone on the radio. Um, and so I started studying classical piano at a young age.
0: Well, you, do you have a set list? Do you know what you're going to play? I have no
9: idea yet what I'm going to
10: <laughs> And... There is there is something wonderful about having this idea of a setlist and I often walk into a venue with some idea but you know who's in the room is going to change how how the evening goes, how it feels. I think we're going to be on an interesting roller coaster. I think we're going to take it real quiet and intimate. I think we're going to get a bit loud and noisy and I'm hoping that we all just go on an incredible journey together. But to that point, Kyle, do you have any requests? Open wide. Thank taken around the block like some of the other works in my repertoire. Um, but my husband, James T. Lundy, he is a producer and a composer and we collaborate very extensively together. And so we were commissioned by the Missouri Rep Theater to create an original work on the theme of haunting or to be haunted uh, for their event Ghost Light, which happened this past October. So we were actually traveling and we realized that when we came back we had about three days before we needed to write and record a song for such a prestigious arts organization like the Kansas City Repertory Theater. But we did it, and then we put it out, and we're really delighted with it. And I love that you just brought it up.
0: Well, so the reason I asked if you've been able to perform, because there's such an atmosphere about it. And, and And when you were talking about you wanted to find that stereo system and just become in that... I hear that in many of your songs. Having a, a creative collaborator who's also a producer helps achieve that?
10: Kyle, you have just named one of one of the many exquisite talents of James T. Lundy. I find that his production is like an architecture of sound that you can really walk into and just like choose your own sonic adventure because of the complexity and the layers of the music that are present. And I think that's a beautiful aspect of what we offer is that when we're performing live, we can get we can strip it down and get really intimate and acoustic. And then we do have productions where we perform with full backing tracks and epic visuals. And it's kind of a, a much bigger spectacle, or at least a different kind of spectacle.
0: Spectacle. I love that word because... Um... You know, I think when someone just uses the phrase singer-songwriter or piano singer songwriter there's this idea, whether we're right or not, we come up with this idea of what that might be. When, when someone brings up a song of yours, and Patty, I'm going to ask you this after, because I think I've asked you a, a version of this question before, Patty, but when someone brings up a song of yours that they like or they would like to hear, can you go back to when it was being created and what inspired
10: you? I think that, something that is a beautiful aspect um, in my relationship to the songs that I've written or the songs that I interpret is sometimes the meaning changes. And sometimes the song that felt really sad when you wrote it is actually kind of angry later on, or maybe something becomes sort of moody when it had been joyous. And I think that's a part of sort of who we are as people you know, sometimes we show up and we're in a different space. And I always ask my songs, who wants to be played for this show? And let me just show up in that moment. However, that song needs me to play it in that moment. And if I can sort of surrender to that, I think there is a magic that you invite into the space. I also think that it's really important to me that I don't speak too much sometimes about the meaning of the songs that I write, because I really love it when somebody who's listening has a story all their own, and then the song becomes their song. That, to me, is ace. I, I, I find that really profound, and I love to hear how people hear or interpret the work we create. Yeah, I can agree with that very much. <laughs>
0: Patty, can you go back to the creations of songs or the inspirations?
9: Oh yeah. I mean I, I'm still in my I call it baby steps as far as writing, but all of mine been of mostly in the last five four to five years, with the exception of Miss My Home, which was written many, many years ago. But I still remember sitting upstairs in that house going I was living in Kansas City at the time when I wrote it, and I was missing my my home. So it was, like, so literal, which is mostly how I write. Um, I think one of the things that I, as an artist, would like to try to start enduring more or writing more of is, like, I really like, um, like, movies particularly. particular. I always envision things visually first before I can write about them because I'm a visual communicator and because I'm a photographer that's where my first art is and so I see things visually and that's usually how I can write about it. You mentioned that you also interpret songs and there
0: was a project a couple years ago when I think it was fan voted uh, or fan suggested uh, a couple dozen songs that were familiar to people but you recorded them and many of them in your own way and discovered something if not completely different from the creator's version, something, you know, not just the same thing.
10: What was that process and what was it like? Sure. So in September of 2020, in order to help use our platform to inspire our listeners to register, to vote and to vote in the then upcoming presidential election, we decided to create this project called songs of september so every day in september i learned a new song about protest hope or change and then had about two or three chances to do it my husband he filmed it he recorded it mixed and mastered it and we posted a different song every day for that month alongside voter registration information. And at the end of that month, we asked all of our listeners for them to choose their favorite interpretations. And then we created a democratically selected album called Seeds. And it was a really incredible process. And one of the things that really struck me to your point, um, and as we were also speaking earlier in this interview about just uh, the meaning of things and how people hear things. One song in particular, I, I did a cover of Born in the USA. And I certainly did it my way. Born down in a dead man's town. The first kick I took was when I hit the ground. And a black like a doll it's been be too much to expend. And it was interesting how many people trolled me entirely irate that I had changed his song, that I had changed Bruce Springsteen's lyrics. And the thing is, they just had not heard the song in the way that it actually was written. And that was just a really intriguing, that was just a very intriguing experience to have. All right, one last thing. Um, You like books. What? (laughs) Yes. So he's by, asking this as we're on a Zoom and I'm sitting in front of um, part of my book collection.
0: <laughs> well, and also on your Web page in your bio, you say that you love bookstores and use bookstores. Yes. Has anyone told particularly
10: you? used book bookstores? Oh, boy.
0: Absolutely. Has anyone told you about Dixon Street Bookshop? It no. Can, oh,
9: boy. I, I was, was going to
0: surprise her. Oh, well, she'll <laughs> still be surprised.
10: There we go, Kyle. Um, <laughs>
0: just know that it's amazing yes yeah it's one of the best used bookstores in the country <gasps> the performance is saturday night thank you both so much for
9: your time thank you so much for having us thank you so much for having us
0: julia Othmer and patty Steele will perform saturday night at club 509 in the american shaman kava bar in downtown fayetteville the music will take place from seven to nine our conversation took place tuesday this is ozarks at large
1: Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, a listener supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today include Daniel Carruth and Raven Cook.
0: Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Our theme, written and performed by Daryl Sean.
1: Okay, Kyle. So it's Wednesday, which tends to mean in the college baseball and softball seasons, it's kind of the off day. Right. Uh, they, they play through the weekend. Sometimes they'll play a one-off game on Monday or Tuesday. Right. Um, so we've got a little bit of a break in the softball and baseball schedule right now. So let's do a little bit of catch-up on where we are with with softball and baseball across gotcha. the state. First up we've got the Razorback softball. They're number 18 in the softball America poll, 13 and 3 so far this season. They are hosting the Woo Pig Classic beginning on Thursday. They'll be hosting Southeast Missouri State, Florida Atlantic and South Dakota State.
0: Already have a perfect game
1: this year. The Razorback
0: yeah. pitching staff.
1: Yeah, they're not bad. No, they're not. Speaking of not bad, <laughs> Razorback baseball. They're number 2 in the D1Baseball.com poll, they're 6-2 so far this season. They'll host Missouri—they'll host Murray State, rather, this weekend for a three-game series. Home of the Racers. Yes. I have spent
0: much time around—I have run on that Murray State campus because uh, my wife's family, some of them live in Murray, Kentucky.
1: And the baseball team is is pretty good this year. And I'm
0: still going to be rooting for the Razorbacks, yes. just in case there was any confusion there.
1: Yes, exactly. <clears throat> we also have uh, University of Central Arkansas baseball. They're 5-4 and four so far this season, with two very narrow losses to LSU earlier this month. It was a one-run game in both of those games. And LSU's
0: always good. They're
1: very good at baseball. Uh, and they gave Arkansas State their first loss of the season yesterday in extra innings. They'll play the Razorbacks at Baum Walker Stadium next Tuesday on the 5th.
0: And one of the best things about baseball is anybody can beat anybody. Yeah. Right? I, wasn't it... Didn't UALR beat Arkansas last year? Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. But,
1: yeah. And uh, last and certainly not least is Arkansas Arkansas Tech Softball. They are 9-4, and four. So far this season, it's wild to think that they've played this many games. Uh, and we're not even out of February. Yeah. But that's softball for you. The Golden Suns That's why will, you take
0: blankets to early season ex- softball ex- games. Exactly. Yes.
1: Exactly. The Golden Suns will host Henderson State this weekend for a three-game series in Russellville. And arguably my favorite part of the Arkansas Tech softball team is assistant coach, Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson is a bow-tie-wearing facet hound who was listed as the team's emotional support coach.
0: Well, we have more for you tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Walmart Amp presents Maggie Rogers on the Don't Forget Me Tour, Monday, June 3rd at the Walmart Amp and Rogers with special guest The Japanese House. Tickets on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. at amptickets.com.